0: As you remember, if you were here last week, we started the book of Philemon. We did an introduction to the book of Philemon last week. So if you want to be turning there, it's that little one-page letter right after Titus and before Hebrews. Hopefully you'll remember last week as we introduced the book that this was a personal letter written by the Apostle Paul to his friend Philemon. Paul has a special request that he's going to make of Philemon concerning his runaway slave Onesimus. And last week we spent some time looking at the issue of slavery. We are trying to put that in the context of the day in which it, this book was written. We also briefly discussed some cultural issues and how we as Christians should affect the culture. But the main theme of the book of Philemon, as we stated last week, is Forgiveness. So what I want to do this morning is to read the first nine verses, and then we will look specifically at verses four through seven. Philemon, chapter one, the first nine verses. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apipia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the agent and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. As I was preparing this lesson, the thought came across my mind that if I were not a Christian, I wonder if I would ever think about the subject of forgiveness. And that's not a subject that outside of Christianity that you hear much about or many books written up on. I don't watch a lot of TV, but I do watch one show in particular called NCIS. Anybody else watch that show? Oh, a few hands going up. One of the main characters is Gibbs, and he has a lot of rules that he quotes during the show. One of those rules. I think it's rule number six. He says, never say you're sorry. It's a sign of weakness. Phil watches the show. <laughs> Actually, I don't think that originated with him. I think John Wayne said that in one of his old movies. It was the first time I think I ever heard that. But it's not cool for a tough guy to say you're sorry. It makes you look weak is their interpretation of that. And that's somehow how the world looks at forgiveness, isn't it? Our society you know, is so non-Christian that it looks at forgiving people as weak people. And unforgiving people as strong. You know, and when you think about Hollywood and movies, you think about how people that are revengeful, you know, are kind of held up in high esteem. I thought of Arnold Schwarzenegger and his famous line, I'll be back, you know, because we want to see him come back and get revenge. I don't get mad, I get even. That's a world least comment. So it's not just Hollywood, though. It's real people. Look at all the crime that is done in the name of retaliation or getting revenge. Think about lawsuits and in, in their essence. Not always, but lawsuits in a lot of times is just a way of getting back at someone. Our society holds up revenge and justice as virtues, not forgiveness and meekness. But for a Christian, forgiveness is mandatory. It's part of God's character, and we are commanded to make it part of our character Last week, as we introduced this subject, I read Ephesians 4:32. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read it again, because it sets the stage as one of the models for us, and I'm going to look at a few verses around that as we go through this. Ephesians 4:32 says, "Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you." We have no right as a Christian to hold unforgiveness. Why? Because God in his mercy did not withhold it from us. So how can we not forgive? Before I get into the specifics of the text, I want to give you a few results of not granting forgiveness. I'm sure there's a whole bunch, but I just listed four obvious ones. Number one, unforgiveness imprisons people and their past. If someone has wronged you and you refuse to forgive them, you cannot move forward in that relationship or that area of your life. Will it ever get better? Not if you don't forgive them. It's like an open wound. It's a sore. It might scab over, but it doesn't ever go away. In the counseling ministry, especially with marital counseling or relationship counseling, I found that almost always this is an issue, and you can't move forward and get the relationship on the right track if you don't deal with the past issues and forgiveness is a big part of that. There's no restoration if there's no forgiveness. The second result of unforgiveness is unforgiveness produces bitterness and anger and all kinds of other negative emotions. Look at the verse that I read right before verse 32 in Ephesians 4. Look at verse 31. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So right before the verse that he talked about forgiving each other, he lists a lot of things that we are to forgive one another for. That's no coincidence. Bitterness produces lots of other things like anger and wrath. If an unforgiving person has bitterness in his heart, he usually has anger and resentment A lot of times he will slander and gossip because of that. Almost every counseling case that I have done that involved relationships, there were serious problems such as divorce was looming and things like that. There was almost every case there was unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, all built up that had to be dealt with. And that's not right. Not only is it a sin, it's scientifically proven to be bad for you. Um, If you harbor unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment scientists have actually proven that it's bad for your health that it actually affects you but i know people that have had horrible lives in the sense of what i would think of i know people that have gone through horrible situations spouse leaving them unjustly kinds of illnesses that i can't even imagine deaths of children and things that would would think that would make you really um, have a rough life, you know, in the sense of people treating you badly. And I feel sorry for them. But if you've met someone that holds that bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness, sometimes even towards God, it can take hold of their life. And it changes their whole personality. They can become a whole different person because of it. It festers and grows. That's one of the results of unforgiveness. The third one that I noticed is that unforgiveness gives Satan an open door. Turn back to Ephesians 4 again. This time, go back to verse 26 and 27. Verse 26 says, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's a very common verse that we hear quoted a lot. But verse 27, he goes on to say, And do not give the devil... An opportunity. And I had to think about that a little bit more. How does does, do we give the devil an opportunity? What is it that we give the devil an opportunity? I found an example in Second Corinthians chapter two where Paul talked about this again. If you turn over to Second Corinthians chapter two, this was an account of the Apostle Paul who had A man that had spoken verbally attacked him, and Paul had asked the church to exercise church discipline upon the man. And then this man repented. And I'll pick up in verse 5, and this is what Paul then tells the church. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. That's the church discipline he was talking about. Verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive him and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I write, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what have I forgiven if I have forgiven anything? I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. And here it is in verse 11. He says, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So what's Paul talking about? What, what kind of opportunity, what kind of uh, open door does this not forgiving someone present to Satan? And I thought about that in my own life. And, situations that I have seen develop, and I thought about disunity in the churches. Have you ever noticed a church, anybody ever seen a church split, been involved? I see some people shaking their heads, been involved in a church split. I've seen a couple in my lifetime. Most of them were caused by unforgiveness and bitterness between people, not over big doctrinal issues, but just issues that developed and festered because people couldn't get along with other people over certain issues. And that, I think, is one way in which the devil takes these open doors and presents him an opportunity to develop it into something much greater. Have you seen this in your family and friends? I have a relative, it's actually Terry's aunt, who hasn't spoken to her son in over 16 years and it was over something relatively stupid in my opinion um they were actually at Terry's dad's funeral and he died in a car wreck unexpectedly and he was a very popular man in the community and the whole church was completely packed it seemed like everybody in town was there and this lady's son was by she was divorced and the husband of the herd that had the the boy by was i guess a bad ended in a bad relationship And his dad's sister came into the the funeral and his mom whispered to him, what's she doing here? And he said, that's my aunt. She's not part of my family. And he said, well, she is mine. And they haven't spoken since. From that day forward, they've never spoken a word over that. The mom has tried to call him, tried to write him letters, tried to, to get him to seek forgiveness. And he does not respond. He just ignores her, and has wrote her off. That's unforgiveness in a dramatic way. But that's the kind of thing that sometimes develops from this bitterness. Now, can can a Christian participate in this type of activity? The Bible says no. That's why the Bible says. Don't give the devil an opportunity to drag this into anything more because sin is progressive and one sin leads to another. The fourth area that I see that unforgiveness does is that unforgiveness hinders our relationship with God. As we stated last week, unforgiveness is a serious subject. You know, the Bible has many verses that really present this as a very serious subject. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Matthew 6 says, if you forgive men for their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And we could get into a theological discussion over what that means, but at the bare minimum, I think it shows you that your relationship with others and also with God is hindered if you refuse to forgive. I'm going to stop there. We could go on and talk about a lot of other things that um, unforgiveness does and causes in our life. I thought about the disunity. I thought about divine chastening. Any sin, especially the sin of unforgiveness, is going to bring about Chastening to God's children because God doesn't want us to stay there. He's going to try to chasten us. We could talk about how unforgiveness hinders our worship. We could talk about how when we choose not to forgive someone, we're usurping God's authority, saying that we are the higher court. God says, vengeance is mine. So there's a lot of places we could go with that, but I just wanted to get you started on the thought of what some of the repercussions of choosing not to forgive someone is. So I'm going to pick up and go through. Verses 4 through 7, specifically in the book of Philemon. And I'm not going to read it all again for the sake of time. But Paul begins in the the first few verses of verse 4 by saying, encouraging things. He he praises him. He gives him a lot of good comments. What's the difference between praise and flattery? Motive? Flattery is not always true. I think sincerity would be a big part of it. Flattery sometimes is just trying to maybe to manipulate or to, you know, to give in seer, hyped up words. Praise is something encouraging, uplifting, and, you're, and it's sincere. Paul is sincerely, as he begins these, this section, he begins to praise Philemon. And he does it with sincere compliments. Nowhere in this letter do we have any indication that Paul had, knows anything negative about Philemon. You know, his path, his pastor Epaphras was there from Colossae in prison. Onesimus' slave, Philemon's slave, was there. And Paul doesn't give any indication that he knows anything negative about him. If you think about Paul's letters... A lot of times he starts out by encouraging and praising, and then he goes into admonitions and warnings and you know corrective behavior, things you need to change. He doesn't do this here. In this personal letter, there's no indication he really knows anything negative about Philemon. It all seems to be positive. He knows the character of Philemon, so he doesn't really go into giving him any corrective behavior, he just kind of reminds him of all the good things he already knows and hears about him. I think this is important because Paul knows the character of Philemon, and he fully expects him to grant forgiveness based on his knowledge of Philemon's character. And that's important because it shows us the type of spiritual character of one who forgives. So in these verses, we see six spiritual characteristics of one who forgives. The first one comes in the first four and the beginning of first five. He says, I thank my God, always making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of your faith, which you have towards the Lord Jesus. So the first characteristic of one who forgives is that he has a concern for the Lord. Paul mentions this characteristic first because it's that faith in God that it's only by that faith that anyone has the ability to totally forgive. What does Roman 3.10 say? There's none righteous. There's none who does good, not even one. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. Romans 8.7 says that if anyone is in the flesh, he cannot please God. He's not even able to do so. Those verses teach us that in and of ourselves, we really don't have the ability to do good. And I don't think without Christ in our life that many times people that have been really, really wronged if you think about uh, people like Carrie Tin Boone and people that have went through some horrible treatment in their life and were able to forgive the vilest offenders only through the power of God and the Holy Spirit, does someone have the ability to do that? People controlled by the flesh will a lot of times find it impossible to do that. Philemon loved the Lord. And wanted to please him. Paul knew that Philemon would be able to forgive Onesimus, because he knew he would, he would want to please the Lord. The second spiritual characteristic of one who forgives is that there is a concern for people in their lives. Verse 5 goes on to say, I hear of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Toward all the saints. We all know that there are several different words in the Greek for the word love. And this one that's used here is the word agape, which is that love of will and choice. It's the divine love. It's the, one of the gifts of the Spirit. When Galatians 5 where it tells the gifts of the Spirit, the first one is love. Love, joy, peace, patience. That's the agape love. It's not the love of brotherly love or romantic love, but it's the will of choice. And that's the a divine love. All Christians are lovable, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah. So by your laughter, I would say that you have encountered people that are hard to love that go by the name of Christian. You can't do that. You can't love everyone without God's help, with the Holy Spirit's help. We are called to love even people that we don't. Naturally, find lovable. And the only way we could do that is through God's help. You know, if it was left up to me without um, thinking about, you know, being a Christian and what the Bible says to me, when the people I come in contact with that aren't very lovable, it would be a lot easier just to avoid them, to go the other way, to just, you know, try to stay away. And then I wouldn't have to deal with that. But that's not biblical. That The Bible calls us to even love our enemies. So, it's a hard passage, but we can do it because we have a concern for people, and, and, the, and the Bible tells us to have a concern for people. The third uh, spiritual characteristic of one who forgives is found in verse 6, and it's a concern for fellowship. Verse 6 says, And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective. Do you, Anybody know what the word for fellowship is? Koinonia. That's right. Koinonia, and I hear it's a hard word to express in English. When I think of the word fellowship, and I sometimes pray for, you know, Lord will help us to have good fellowship, I'm thinking about sitting around the meals with people and enjoying their company. And it is fellowship in that sense. But the koinonia is much deeper than that. That word expresses a deep belonging to. It's, it's like the family, the way you feel about your immediate family, that belonging. And that's the type of fellowship we are to have with one another. What do you suppose would happen if Philemon doesn't forgive Onesimus? There would probably be disharmony in the church, in the koinonia of the church family. The word effective used here translates ineres, E-N-E-R-E-S. If I had my little flip chart, you'd see it, E-N-E-R-E-S. What, what does that word sound like in English? Close to energy. And that's the root of the word actually means power and become powerful. The word that talks about this fellowship of your faith may become effective or powerful. that That's what the root meaning for. And as you look at that and think about how that might be, I think... It, it means it implies that there would be a powerful message to the church about the importance of unity and fellowship. Forgiving our brothers and sisters makes a strong statement about our concern for fellowship. The fourth um, spiritual characteristic of one who forgives comes in the second part of verse 6. It says, Through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you. Through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you. Ephesians 1.3 says, We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You know, as a Christian, we have a new nature. We're not the same inside as we once were. We have, we have become new. But how do we discover what that new nature is? We learn about it from Scripture, but how do we really learn it? We learn it by experiencing it. The word used for knowledge here is a word that refers to the deep experiential knowledge that comes from personal acquaintance. And as I thought about that, I thought about something I wanted to do that I've never done is skydive. Anybody here ever skydived? Nope. Do you think you could become an expert on paper about skydiving? Would that do any justice to what the real experience would be falling out of the sky and the wind hitting you in the face as you watch the ground get closer and closer to you? I don't think anything that we... Could read about would would be the same as actually experiencing that, and we can hear a sermon about forgiveness. We can read a Bible have a Bible study about forgiveness, but we really experience it by practicing it, wouldn't don't we? And that's what Paul is talking about here is this experiential knowledge, and that he is you know the person that is concerned about. Forgiveness is concerned about actually experiencing it from a first-hand view. And I think that's the way that applies to all of the, you know, the things that were commanded in God. You know, we can read about it and think about it, but we are to experience it by practicing it. Fifth, the fifth characteristic of a person that forgives is that they have a concern for Christ's glory. And it comes from just the simple words, for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake, one who forgives, a characteristic of one who forgives is a concern about Christ's glory. If we refuse to forgive, we are not glorifying Christ. Paul assumes Philemon will forgive Onesimus because he knew that he had a concern to glorify Christ. Do You remember what Paul told the Corinthian church when they had this big issue about eating food sacrificed to idols and some believed that it you know, that it was wrong and some said it was okay and they had this big disunity over it. And Paul in chapter ten, verse thirty one, he says, Whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do all to the glory of God. Whatever we do in life should be done to the glory of God. We are to make that our first priority in our in our character. I had a person in one of my counseling sessions. That week, we always ask them how their week went, and they started explaining something that happened in their week, and it was a pretty big blow-up. And I asked the man, I turned to him and said, did you ask for forgiveness? And he said, I asked God for forgiveness, but I am not asking her. And I proceeded then to go into this point about, well, you really don't care about Christ, you know, because you, you, why did you even bother asking God for forgiveness if you're unwilling to ask your wife because God's concerned about His glory and your, your desire to please Him, you know what He thinks about it. And the man eventually became convicted of his pridefulness and they restored the relationship and it was a very good ending to that story. But I had to remind both of them along the way what true forgiveness is all about. And one of it is a concern for Christ's glory. Number six, the sixth spiritual characteristic of one who forgives is they desire to be a blessing. Verse 7 says, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. In order to do this, Paul must have known, for him to be able to say this, he must have known Philemon's acts of kindness. He doesn't specifically tell us what they are but he had to have some kind of knowledge of his kindness in order to say that. You know, he was said that he had a lot of joy. It gave Paul joy and comfort. So he must have known what was going on in Philemon's life. So whatever it was, it gave him joy and comfort. The word for heart here is splankna, and it literally means bowels. In the Old Testament, a lot of times, and it carried over into the New Testament, it could be. The, the whole, we talk about the emotions coming from the heart. They talk about the emotions coming from the bowels. And if you think about it, where are most of your nerves in your body? It's in your abdomen area. It's one of the reasons there's so much, say, doctors have such a hard time diagnosing what's going on in your stomach area is because there's so many nerves and there can be all this referred pain. But the bowels were the seat of the emotions. Um, when you get sick to your stomach, when you're nervous, why do you, you don't get sick at your heart. Usually you get sick at your stomach because of all the nerves there. So we have this idea here that whatever he is doing, he is helping people that are emotionally upset. And that suggests that Philemon had a reputation of helping people that were struggling, maybe even emotionally. The word for refreshed is a military term that was used of an army that was resting from marching. So Philemon was a man who helped struggling brothers find rest. We have no indication that Philemon was any official position in the church, but he was a prominent layperson, probably a businessman who showed love and kindness to those of the church. Paul was banking on this reputation that he could be counted on to forgive Onesimus because he desired to be a blessing to others. I said it last week, and I'll say it again. Paul was a very smart man. I find it fascinating, the words that he chose. He purposely chose these words in this introduction. And, of course, he was you know, led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, too. But he was very intelligent in the way he crafted his words and his letter. Because I thought about the way I would have. If I had wanted to instruct my friend Philemon you know, to to release his, you know, to accept his slave Onesimus back, here's the way I would have wrote the letter. Dear Philemon, the purpose of this letter is to inform you that I am sending your runaway slave Onesimus back to you. He's now your brother in Christ, and this means you need to forgive him and accept him back and display mercy to him like Christ did you sincerely might. That's probably all I would have known to say. Paul hasn't gotten to anything like that. All he has done is been encouraging him. He's been telling him what a good person he is. And he's, he's re- relaying all these things. He's heard good, you know, good things about him. He lists all these spiritual characteristics that Philemon has shown in his life. Why is he doing that? Is he manipulating him? No, I don't think he's manipulating him. I think he's making the decision easier for him. He's just reminding him of things that he's done in, in the past and his character, and he's making the, ease, the decision easier for him. And he starts out by describing the spiritual characteristics Fleeman has displayed in the past. And next week, we're going to actually look at the actions of a forgiving person and the attitudes and motivations of a forgiving person. But before I end today, I wanted to discuss a little bit more of this attitude of bitterness. As we said earlier, one of the main results of not forgiving is a heart attitude of bitterness. And I thought about what bitterness is. When I think about things that are bitter, I think about a bitter taste being something hard to swallow. A bitter cold is hard to bear. The bitter truth is a phrase used to describe a situation when telling the truth is painful. Bitter enemies are those whose very names strike fear in our heart. So when the Bible speaks of bitterness or a bitter spirit, speaking of that which produces a bad taste, an unpleasant reaction, that which is characterized by resentment or anger. And as I was looking at this, I, I found a story on, that really relays this how, what bitterness can fester in your life and, and can do to you. It's a true story. It's, I found it in a book by Tim Kimmel, who's a Christian writer who wrote a, a lot of books on family life. And I have enough time. Yes, I have enough time. I want to read this. It will take a few minutes, but I think it really displays this attitude of bitterness and what it can do in your life. Shortly after the turn of the century, Japan invaded, conquered, and occupied Korea. All of their oppressors, Japan was the most ruthless. They overwhelmed the Koreans with a brutality that would sicken the strongest of stomachs. Their crimes against women and children were inhuman. Many Koreans live today with the physical and emotional scars from the Japanese occupation. One group singled out for concentrated oppression was the Christians. When the Japanese army overpowered Korea, one of the first things they did was board up the evangelical churches and eject most foreign missionaries. It has always fascinated me how people fail to learn from history. Conquering nations have consistently felt that shutting up churches would shut down Christianity. It didn't work in Rome when the church was established, and it hasn't worked since. Yet somehow the Japanese thought they would have a different success record. The conquerors started by refusing to allow churches to meet and jailing many of the key Christian spokesmen. The oppression intensified as the Japanese military increased its profile in the South Pacific. The land of the rising sun spread its influence through a reign of savage brutality. Anguish filled the hearts of the oppressed and kindled hatred deep in their souls. One pastor persistently entreated his local Japanese police chief for permission to meet for services. His nagging was finally accommodated and the police chief offered to unlock his church for one meeting. It didn't take long for word to travel. Committed Christians starving for an opportunity for unhindered worship quickly made their plans. Long before dawn on that promised Sunday, Korean families throughout a wide area made their way to the church. They passed the staring eyes of their Japanese captors, but nothing was going to steal their joy. As they closed the doors behind them, they shut out the cares of oppression and shut in a burning spirit, anxious to glorify their Lord. The Korean church has always had a reputation of a singing church. Their voices of praise could not be concealed inside the little wooden framed sanctuary. Song after song rang through the open windows into the bright Sunday morning. For a handful of peasants listening thereby, the last two songs this congregation sang seemed suspended in time. It was during a stanza of Nearer My God to Thee that the Japanese police chief waiting outside gave the orders. The people toward the back of the church could hear of them when they barricaded the doors, but no one realized that they had doused the church with kerosene until they smelled the smoke. The dried wooden skin of the small church quickly ignited. Fumes filled the structure as tongues of flames began to lick the baseboard on the interior walls. There was an immediate rush for the windows, but momentary hope recoiled in horror as the men climbing out the windows came crashing back in, their bodies ripped by a hail of bullets. The good pastor knew it was the end. With a calm that comes from confidence, he led his congregation in a hymn whose words served as a fitting farewell to earth and a loving salutation to heaven. The first few words were all prompted by the terrified worshipers, needed was all they needed. With smoke burning their eyes, they instantly joined as one to sing their hope and leave their legacy. Their song became a serenade to the horrified and helpless witnesses outside. Their words also tugged at the hearts of the cruel men who oversaw this flaming execution of the innocent. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. Would He devote that sacred heart for such a worm as I? Just before the roof collapsed, the song, they sang the last verse. Their words an eternal testimony to their faith. But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away, just all that I can do. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. The strains of music and the wails of children were lost in a roar of flames. The element that once formed bone and flesh mixed with smoke and dissipated into the air. The bodies that once housed life fused with the charred rubble of a building that was once housed a church. But the souls who left left singing finished their course in the throne room of God. Clearing the incinerated remains was the easy part. Erasing the hate would take decades. For some of the relatives of the victims, this carnage was too much. Evil had stooped to a new low, and there seemed to be no way to curb their bitter loathing of the Japanese. In the decades that followed, that bitterness was passed on to a new generation. The Japanese, although conquered, remain a hated enemy. The monument the Koreans built at the location of the fire not only memorialized the people who died, but stood as a mute reminder of their pain and a rest. How could rest coexist with a bitterness deep as marrow in the bones? Suffering, of course, is part of life. People hurt people. Almost all of us have experienced it at some time. Maybe you felt it when you came home to find that your spouse had abandoned you or when your integrity was destroyed by a series of well-timed lies or when your company was bled dry by a partner, it kills you inside. Bitterness clamps down on your soul like iron shackles. The Korean people who found it too hard to forgive could not enjoy that peace that passes all understanding. Hatred choked their joy. It wasn't until 1972 that any hope came. A group of Japanese pastors traveling through Korea came upon the memorial. When they read the details of the tragedy and the names of the spiritual brothers and sisters who had perished, they were overcome with shame. Their country had sinned, and even though none of them were personally involved, some were not even born at the time, they still felt the national guilt that could not be excused. They returned to Japan, committed to right or wrong. There was an immediate outpouring of love from their fellow believers. They raised 10 million yen. The money was transferred through proper channels, and a beautiful white church building was erected on the site of the tragedy. When the dedication service for the new building was held, a delegation from Japan joined the relatives and special guests. Although their generosity was acknowledged and their attempts of making peace appreciated, the memories were still there. Hatred preserves pain. It keeps the wounds open and the hurts fresh. The Koreans' bitterness had festered for decades. Christian brothers or not, these Japanese were descendants of a ruthless enemy. The speeches were made, the details of the tragedy recalled, the names of the dead honored. It was time to bring the service to a close. Someone in charge of the agenda thought it would be appropriate to conclude with the same two songs that were sung in the day the church was burned. The song leader began by the, the words to near my God to thee, but something remarkable happened as the voices mingled on the familiar melody. As the memories of the past mixed with the truth of the song, resistance started to melt. The inspiration that gave hope to a doomed collection of church churchgoers in a past generation gave hope once more. The song leader closed the service with the hymn at the cross. The normally stoic Japanese could not contain themselves. The tears that began to fill their eyes during the song suddenly gushed from deep inside. They turned to their Korean spiritual relatives and begged them to forgive. The guarded, calloused hearts of the Koreans were not quick to surrender, but the love of the Japanese believers, unintimidated by decades of hatred, tore at the Koreans' emotions. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. One Korean turned toward a Japanese brother, then another, and in the floodgates holding back, a wave of emotions let go. The Koreans met their new Japanese friends in the middle. They clung to each other and wept. Japanese tears of repentance and Korean tears of forgiveness intermingled to bathe the sight of an old nightmare. Heaven had sent the gift of reconciliation to a little white church in Korea. I think that was an extreme example of what bitterness can do in the life even of a believer. And most of us don't have that type of dramatic story about forgiveness, but the truth be known, we all have a story. Most of us have been wronged or been hurt by someone, maybe not in such a dramatic way. But as I thought about this, I've thought about how do you reflect to see if there's some need of forgiveness in your own life? How would you do this? What signs would you look for? Was there someone that you intentionally don't talk to? Is there someone that when you hear their name, negative emotions come up and you might tend to say negative things about them to other people? Is there someone that you've done a favor for or lent money to that never repaid you and you just can't let it go? You constantly have that memory when you see them. These are signs that you have not totally forgiven that person. God says we are to forgive, to give it up, to release it, let it go. Why? Because our sin against the holy God was much greater than anything done to us And he forgave us. So if you have that need in your life, I pray that this would be a point where you would do something about it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this book of Philemon and this chapter devoted to the very important topic of forgiveness. Father, I pray that there's anyone in this room today that has bitterness, resentment, anger, animosity, any of these things harbored against another individual that you would work on their heart today and that you would give them the strength and the will through your spirit to forgive them, Father. For we know that forgiveness is not for the one that needs it, Father, but the one that needs to forgive. And we, Father, as Christians, you have provided the ultimate forgiveness to us. Father, we have left to our own. We were running from you and you, Father instilled upon our hearts the faith and the will to turn from it, Father. And we are so thankful that you sent your Christ to die for us, to forgive us for our sins. And as we continue towards that holiday that we call Christmas, Father, that we as Christians celebrate the birth of our Savior, may it be ever on our hearts this Christmas season during the busyness of this time, Father, that He came, Father, to die as a sacrifice to forgive us our debts. May we keep that ever so in our mind this holiday season. It's in His Son, Your Son, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.